Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Sunday, November 1, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. And this evening we have some exciting news. We have a new member of the podcast team, Greg from Philadelphia, joining us for a panel discussion. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. I'm so excited to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, really positive about the direction of the Alliance Party and thrilled that we have this podcast to reach out and inform everybody, especially in this election. So uh, I'm Greg from Philadelphia, coming at you by way of Southern California this year. <laughs> and uh, super excited to be here. Wonderful. Well, Greg, as I understand it, you are already a longtime podcaster and, and an online community builder. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself before we get started here? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm from Philadelphia. I graduated from Ursinus College with a BA in International Relations. Studied at University of Michigan, where I got my master's degree in information science. And, you know, then the economic collapse happened. I had to take my career in a different direction, and I got really into online community building, uh, mostly in gaming, but my passion lay in podcasting as well, and I wound up creating a whole bunch of shows, uh, some of which are still going, and uh, it's just always been something I've really loved and felt a lot of drive for. It's a really great medium, and I'm really happy to bring my experience and my knowledge in that sphere, as well as my passion for politics and government reform here to After Dark. All right. Well, you come to us with a lot of experience. That's good. Um, and so uh, besides Greg, we're talking to us. We have a small panel of people uh, ready to provide some perspective on the upcoming election. Uh, the election's coming up in two days. Well, I guess it's been going on for a while, but the uh, it concludes, I should say, in two days. Uh, first of all, we have Philip Fuhrer, the uh, Alliance Party Chair for Minnesota, joining us. Hello, Phil. Good afternoon, Greg and Dan. Thanks for uh, having me on. Well, it's certainly nice to have you on the podcast again. Um, last February, you and Ben Tomey, uh, the state party director for the Independence Alliance Party of Minnesota, uh, were on this podcast, and you guys gave us some good insight to Minnesota politics. Well, thank you, man. Pleasure to be back. Hopefully give some more good insight on the national politics this time around. Also joining us this evening is Mark Cardenas, the Alliance Party state chair for Florida. Quite the battleground state this year, as it always is. Mark was born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he lived most of his life. He raised his two daughters there, but has since moved to Wesley Chapel, Florida. Democrat for most of his life, his first volunteer experience was in the 1984 campaign, uh, Mondale and Ferraro, if you guys remember that. They did lose in a landslide, but they carried Minnesota, so something to be said for that. Disillusioned with the Democratic Party after that, he signed up with the Independence Party of Minnesota in 2015 joined forces with Phil Fuhrer. As part of the Independence Party, he served as the chair for Congressional District 6, became the state party secretary, and worked as the campaign manager for Secretary of State candidate Bill Denny, 2018. Now a resident of Florida, he serves as the state chair for the Alliance Party in that state. He also serves as the state vice chair for the Reform Party of Florida, and his day job, so to speak, is vice president of client relations for a law firm in Tampa, Florida. Mark Cardenas, hello and welcome to Alliance Party After Dark. Hello, and thanks so much for having me on tonight. Uh, and Dan, of course, you are the Alliance Party Chair for Missouri, as I understand it. So we have three big aces on this show. Yeah, indeed. I've uh, It's been one of the two hats I wear at the Alliance Party. Um, I volunteered to be the state chair earlier this year, and it still feels very new to me. Um, and it's been a challenge this year to you know get the traction in Missouri that we need you know, what with COVID and all, and, you know, getting the required number of signatures for ballot access in Missouri was all but impossible. But, you know, we're looking forward to building up a strong team in Missouri uh, post-election, and um, we anticipate making a significant showing in the 2022 midterm elections. Well, I think one key message that's been really reinforced this year, especially for third party and Democratic voters, is that the election isn't the end. A lot of that work is going to be ongoing to uh, to advance your party's positions and or just, you know, from depending on your perspective, repairing the damage done in the past couple of years. Um, but what would you say is the final campaign message for the Alliance Party this year? 
you know, I think the final campaign message has to be uh, a continuation of what we what we'll need to continue over the next few years, and that's trying to to unify the country, uh, find a way that we can talk to each other, and 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 not just not just uh, uh, listen, but hear each other, and and be willing to have those difficult conversations without being disagreeable about that. I know here in Minnesota, a lot of the the Joe Biden late messaging is is centered largely on that theme. I'm guessing some of the same commercials are running nationwide. Uh, but I just don't think I just don't think the Democrats uh, have it within them to to maintain. You know, Joe Biden might have it, uh, but the Democrats themselves, I don't think, have have that conciliation uh, message uh, that they can really bank on. Um, but I think that's something that we can uh, in the Alliance Party continue to push, find candidates that are, are willing to be uh, more statesmen and stateswoman-like uh, versus politicians. And I think that's the final message that we need to continue with these last couple of days and then for the next couple of years. Mark, what are you seeing as the big pitch for the Republican side of this conversation? What's their go-home message to voters? I think uh, r- right now it's, at least in Florida, the, the message is going with who they know versus in a direction that is making folks uneasy. There's been a lot of change in the country uh, in the last decade, and that has a number of folks uh, concerned, uh, whether that be uh, from a a demographic standpoint um, or a a, a policy standpoint. Uh, I, I think the there's some unease uh, down here in Florida on how fast things are changing. And so the, the message that I hear from the uh, Republicans down in, in Florida is uh, to stay with the group that got you here in a sense, and, and you know what you're getting with the Republican party um, versus a democratic party that is a, is a little frayed on their, uh, focus as to what, how they're really going to govern if they are to uh, take the election in 2020. Hey, this is Phil in Minnesota. If I could piggyback on what, I, what I'm seeing in the Republican side, I agree with a lot of what Mark is saying Absolutely. there. Here, here, here in Minnesota, uh, one of the main messages is law and order. You know, we had murder uh, here back in May, uh, right around uh, Memorial Day. Uh, some of the, the rioting and protests and looting that happened after that. We've seen uh, other places, Kenosha, Wisconsin, and other places that have had similar incidents happen. And law and order is, is a message that is coming through not only in uh, the president's commercials, but uh, we've got a candidate for U.S. Senate that's fighting to, to flip the seat uh, away from the Democrats. And then he's also sort of piggybacking on that, that law and order piece. One thing I find interesting, though, uh, and sort of Mark touched on it there, I think, is I've seen a couple of tweets and I got a text message that said, don't let the cure be worse than the disease, which I find eminently uh, uh, hilarious. Uh, basically, you're saying that that Trump is a disease, but the cure is worse. So <laughs> I, I'm not sure that's that's the best messaging that they should be putting out there, but I've seen it a couple of times. That was coming from the Republicans. Oh. That message, or was that because that was from, from the Republicans? Actually, I've I've seen uh, yeah. uh, I got a I got a, a text on it, uh, and I've seen a, a tweet on it as well. And I think I think even in one of the debates, uh, uh, Trump might have said basically the same thing: "Don't let the 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 cure be worse than the disease." I mean, he doesn't mean it that way, but but that's, that's certainly, certainly how you can read it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I, we've heard that down here in Florida as well, um, mainly surrounding uh, COVID itself and, and talking in, in combination with the economy. A lot of uh, the uh, movements towards opening, and, and as everyone knows, we, we've moved very fast here in Florida in a reopening uh, sequence for uh, businesses. And the idea has been around you, you can't, continue to destroy the economy, which is, quote unquote, worse 
than the uh, COVID uh, pandemic itself. Uh, now, I, I think there's an argument to be made uh, on that logic, uh, but that that's the message that is 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 definitely resonating. Yeah, well, you know that that message it does resonate with me to some degree too, because you know what uh, I guess the the point there is what good is the nation if you don't have an economy to support it. Um, on the other hand, I what what I'm what's confusing me, and and I'm talking to my neighbors here about this as well. Uh, if we would all just wear masks, right, and do the social distancing and wash our hands, we don't have to shut down, you know, a lot of the businesses. I mean, restaurant business and and perhaps travel business would, is going to get hit, but uh, it seems like these these shutdowns that has been like an all or nothing sort of proposal. Everybody must stay home. I don't agree with that either. I think you can't keep the economy running if everybody stays at home. So if everybody just wore a mask, um, you know, and, and just speaking from, from my own personal experience, I, I live out just outside of St. Louis County, but I go into St. Louis County a lot to do my shopping. And St. Louis County did something fairly controversial. They said, hey, everybody needs to wear a mask. And guess what? People are masking up. It's it's like uh, I go to the store now. It's uh Maybe I see one person without a mask, but that's 99% coverage, and that's going to go a long way. So, I, I you know, I, when they talk about, you know, uh, uh, the cure being worse than, than, the, um, than the disease itself, I think you can actually have both if people would just pay attention to the guidelines that are being put out there. I think it's an unfortunate, unfortunate political overlap that a lot of the proponents of reopening soon or more quickly or completely are also the same folks who are casting doubt on the effectiveness of masks or uh, if not outwardly discouraging people from wearing them, certainly um, refusing to push for it to be mandatory and just kind of adding a general stigma around mask wearing. And I think we've learned over the course of this virus that it is very effective and could prevent a lot of transmission. And that plus some social distancing measures might enable a lot of businesses to open perhaps not exactly as they were, but still in a, a functional state where they can make profit and keep our economy strong. Well, one thing I did want to bring back to you, Dan, is uh, you know, Missouri is a Republican heartland. Uh, are these uh, law and order messages or the, you know, you know the Republicans, you know what you're getting, don't go for the Democrats, is that energizing the core of the Republican say, not necessarily the party, but like their core electorate, or these messages seem to be more targeted toward the battleground states? What's the what's the enthusiasm level on the ground for both parties? Well, I've uh, looked at a report recently from St. Louis University. They did a, uh, a poll. Uh, they're always doing polls, I guess, but the latest poll was from October. Um, Missouri, the biggest concern here is actually the economy. It, uh, the COVID's a close second, but the economy's initial. It is, and I think that could be because of the, uh, of the secondary effects of COVID, but it also could be the fact that uh, many of the rural areas in Missouri have been flooded about two years ago, and they're still trying to recover from uh, the, the damage. Um, and we're getting these, you know, the more intense flooding here. So, and uh, possibly add to that the uh, trade war. Um, it puts a lot of economic stress on Missouri. So I think that uh, um, I don't think the law and order thing resonates so much here. Uh, but it's uh, the economy seems to be the, the, the bigger thing. And then it's COVID after that. Interesting that the economy and COVID are thought of as two separate issues. We just talked quite at length about how intertwined they are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think there's still going to be significant economic challenges for as long as this virus is around. But ironically, the faster we try to reopen, the, the longer it's probably going to take us to deal with this virus. Now, one thing I'd like to transition to is statewide ballot measures. There are a couple of big ones on the ballots this year. Uh, certainly in the, the state where I'm at, California, we're calling it Prop 22. It's the Lyft and Uber proposition. Uh, should they be full-time employees or should they stay as independent contractors is essentially the core of the question. Um, I would love to hear if there are any similarly bedrock potentially shifting initiatives in your states. And uh, let's start with Phil. You know, we don't have any initiatives in Minnesota, but I, I looking across the country, I think there's a few 
interesting initiatives that I'd love to touch on here for folks that are listening. Uh, it's not all doom and gloom out there. You know, you've got the, the top of the ticket and the, the angst and acrimony, but it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, Maine has statewide ranked choice voting and the states of Alaska and Massachusetts will both be voting uh, on whether to adopt ranked choice voting in their states for, for all of their elections. And, and I think that's a great, uh, it's not a panacea that's going to solve all of our problems, but I think ranked choice voting is a, a great giant step forward for uh, mitigating some of the anger and hostility in elections, as well as providing additional opportunities and choices for independent and third-party candidates. So I think that's that's a great move forward. Another another uh, set of initiatives that I've been looking following is marijuana legalization. Uh, we support that here at the state level in Minnesota. Uh, Eleven states across the country have already uh, approved recreational use of marijuana. Uh, in the country that pendulum is swinging it's coming whether folks are opposed to it or not pendulum swing back and forth and this pendulum is swinging towards legalization there are four states in the country uh, montana new jersey south dakota and arizona that have legalization measures for recreational use of marijuana on their ballots and uh, sounds like at least three of those are going to pass that's going to take us to 14 states with uh, legalized recreational marijuana and, and now we can actually see what uh, the positives and negatives of that might be. Uh, I know out in Colorado, they passed that several years ago and in Washington, the revenues have been very robust. Uh, the doom and gloom of, of uh, society going to hell in a handbasket is not proven to be true. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, another few states join those ranks and see what happens. Yeah, um, if I may interject, also Phil, you talked about the uh, the uh, and Alaska and Massachusetts having ranked choice voting. One another significant develop I've seen in Alaska under ballot measure two, which has ranked choice voting, but they also have this thing called uh, they're they're debating about what they call open top four primaries, and a top four primary is is a type of primary primary election. Uh, in which all candidates are listed on the same primary ballot. And so the top four vote getters, even if they're all from the same party, they're the ones that go to the general election. And what I find very interesting about this is that um, if you look at the book, there's this book called The Politics Industry. It was written by uh, Gail Porter and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Catherine Gale and Michael Porter. And... Um, they talk about the solutions to the the problems that we're seeing with um, with uh, partisanship and and the, they track it all back or a lot of it back to the primaries where they talk about having what they advocate for is a top five primary plus ranked choice voting. So I find it very progressive actually that Alaska is put this on the ballot and I would be very interested to see how that turns out up there. I'm personally very pleased for advancing uh, in. In Alaska, uh, Cal uh, California has top two, uh, the same process, but only the top is that's supposed to provide with some uh, moderate, more moderate candidates. I think in practice, so it's proved disastrous overall. It's top four, though, I think uh, expanding out that pool a little bit is is the solution to top two. What do you think about the, uh, the wrinkle that even if they're all of the same party, that 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 they would go through. Do you see that as a, a potential detriment to a diversity of ideas, or is that more representative if, if truly that many candidates from that party get that much support that they should be in the general, running against each other, essentially? Yeah, you wonder what that would do to negative ads, huh? <laughs> you know, well, I think, I, I think we've seen some Republican primaries in particular get particularly vicious. So yeah. it, uh, I don't know that that would solve that particular issue entirely, but mm -hmm. certainly you'd have to think about uh, getting along with that person who may share your party after the election, which might hopefully temper some uh, some more of the uh, more base tendencies of people running in elections. Mm -hmm. But they still want to win, and I think as long as negative advertising is an effective way to do that or is seen as an effective way to do that, it'll probably continue to be an issue almost no matter what kind of uh, election system we have. Yeah, I, th I think ranked choice voting could, 
speaking of negative ads, I think ranked choice voting could go a long way toward neutralizing a lot of the negative ads because you you got to be careful when you're doing a negative ad that um, you're not alienating the other person's constituency or, or the other person's supporters because you may need them. You know, if nobody makes it to the 50% mark on the first round, um, you're going to need more people to support you, right? So I would think that if you spend all of your dollars insulting those people by insulting their candidate, then that's not going to go so well for you on the second round. Well, that's a great point. Uh, here in Florida, we have a uh, six different cons uh, constitutional amendments on the ballot this year. It's, it's uh, quite a thing. Uh, and one of them is the open primary uh, suggestion uh, with the top two contenders in an open primary moving forward uh, to the general election. Uh, it's funded by an uh, insurance uh, uh, guy in Miami, uh, insurance billionaire, and he's spent $6 million on this campaign to get the uh, amendment on the ballot this year. Um, it's opposed by both the Democratic and the Republican parties. Uh, and personally, I, I, I feel that the, the top two or top four open primary uh, sort of scenario is, uh, is detrimental to the whole process as a whole. Uh, I, I think we, as a third party, we struggle enough with a duopoly, um, but, but I think this open primary sort of idea can uh, bring you all the way down to one party, mm -hmm. you know, ruling, you know, the, uh, the airwaves and the ads and all the uh, news and, and everything uh, that's surrounding uh, the, the political uh, life. So I, I think it's problematic for uh, a number of reasons and uh, we'll have to see if that gets enough uh, juice down here in Florida, but um, it is on our, our uh, 2020 ballot. I think it's interesting too that you talk about um, the Democrats and the Republicans opposing this idea uh, because when I looked at like um, uh, at the ranked choice voting um, question in Massachusetts, they call it question two in Massachusetts, as well as the uh, ballot measure two in Alaska. Um, it's across the board. It's supported by Democrats and and opposed by Republicans. Um, even in Massachusetts, where, where the, uh, from what I understand of the Massachusetts state legislature, there it's a supermajority Democrats. Um, even the Republicans then, who you know would be the underdogs that would potentially benefit from from this ranked choice voting measure, you think they would support it, but uh, but they're against it as a rule. That's interesting to me. I, I still think that the Republican Party as a whole still is is suffering uh, wounds from the the Perot race and and won't really let go of of the idea of letting uh, more than more than two folks at the top of the ticket. Uh, that's me personally, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, but it, I agree that the idea of ranked choice voting um, is critical for uh, our party. Uh, I, I, I have a, a, a belief that it is the lifeline towards all third parties having a voice in the country. Uh, and uh, I see it as the only real way to um, topple the, the, the two-party system. Um, I, I think it does have um, benefits short-term for the two parties, uh, which, you know, right now they, they lose a percentage of votes every year, every election to all the various third parties in the in. Uh, each of the mm -hmm. states and, and being able to now that these races in all so many states have become so close, you know, getting the uh, uh, the Green Party, the the Reform Parties, the uh, 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 the Libertarians over to your side um, would make the difference short term mm -hmm. uh, for a number of these elections. And, and so I think there is some short term benefit for um, 
the the two major parties to uh, to adopt this. I, but I think also long term for us, it's it's our our really only way to to get in front of the electorate. I think thankfully for for the third parties everywhere, that uh, a lot of people tend to think short term. So maybe this is a a path to getting in the door. Well, I hope so. We definitely the third parties could use uh, this type of path because it really is a difficult thing. I've I've often in in the previous podcast referred to it as the castle walls breaching the castle walls, and the castle has a big moat around it with a lot of alligators in it. And this castle is, the, of course, the duopoly, the Republicans and Democrats. So uh, anything that can help breach that wall, I think, would would be a, of, of benefit to everybody. Um. So if I may, if I may also interject here, Greg, you talked about ballot initiatives in in different states. I've mentioned this in different pro, in previous podcasts too. We have in Missouri, we have what's called Amendment Three, and it's very interesting because what it uh, to to go back in history just a little bit to, back to 2018, we had something called Amendment One, which was called Clean Missouri, and it passed with 62 percent of the vote, and um, the the upshot of Amendment One was to uh, provide or create a position called a nonpartisan state demographer who was tasked with drawing the state legislative lines and um, or legislative districts I should say and uh, there's a lot of details that went into it but uh, basically it it required the demographer to consider you know specific criteria including you know what they call partisan fairness and competitiveness contiguousness. Not sure that's a word, but I think it means that you, it's it's all uh, contiguous. In other words, you can go throughout the whole district without having to cross into a different district. Uh, also, compactness and and the boundary of political subdivisions. So, in short, the Amendment One was um, was a major blow to the politicians who are already in office because they want to continue to rely on gerrymandering to stay in office. And uh, and it's also worth noting that uh, Amendment One. Uh, in 2018 earned the endorsements from the Republican, Independent, and Democratic reformers, and also endorsements from every anti-gerrymandering organization, and it also won a majority of vote in every state Senate district, from rural communities to the suburbs, uh, to the big cities. So it seemed like a great idea, but uh, the politicians in power, as I mentioned, they didn't like it, so they didn't want to give up without a fight. So uh, this being a census year, I think they pushed the panic button and they came up with this thing called Amendment 3. And basically what Amendment 3 does, it tries to back out Amendment 1 and says, you know, we want to go back to the old system of having a bipartisan commission duke it out in the back room, you know, out of public oversight, uh, just like in the old days. And um, what's, you know, what it's kind of interesting to me is that, you know, it's not as if they're trying to protect their jobs for the money they're making. The, the legislators in Missouri make just south of $36,000 a year for like, you know, six months worth of work, which I guess isn't bad depending upon where you live. But in the cities, that's not a livable wage, especially if you have a family. So, um, so this, uh, so this amendment three is up right now, uh, from right now, the, as I mentioned before, I looked at some of the polls that St. Louis university conducted, um, a large undecided swath, about 22.5% are undecided. But of those people that have decided, 42.6% uh, oppose this new amendment and 34.9%, um, um, let me see, hang on a second. No, yeah, 42.6% oppose it and 34.9% support it. So it looks like it's going to go down in flames again. But it's interesting to me that, you know, they're bringing this up again. Uh, and this is... The original amendment, Amendment One, was was via um, a signature campaign from uh, citizen groups, and this one actually is driven by the legislatures themselves, who are trying to protect their districts. So that's a big one coming up in Missouri, Amendment Three. Uh, Dan, mind if I ask you a question on that? In the 2020 election, are these races being conducted under the uh, the independently drawn? borders or still previous to that question being passed it's still the highly gerrymandered borders you know but okay. they're, they're going to redraw them after you know you get the census in and like next year it's going to get redrawn and i guess the the big fight right now is who gets to draw these lines right and yeah this is, sounds like the last hurrah of the incumbents yeah yeah exactly exactly it's interesting so that's 
that's a big ballot that's up there, um, or, or a big amendment that's up there right now, ballot issue, I should say. Um, so we'll see how that one turns out, but it looks like it's going to go down in flames. So that's, that's good, I suppose, for people who want to have fair uh, district lines and not have a lot of gerrymandering. Well, the gerrymandering question is really interesting because it highlights that simply moving off of ranked choice voting may not be enough in a lot of cases. There are also other factors to consider, including congressional district lines. And another big one is funding. Yeah. Um, dark money and the, the partisan fundraising juggernauts that have been developed, that can be a significant barrier to diversity of political voice, especially in uh, national races like presidency. Yeah. Do you have any... Um, what do you think are the, are the chances for serious reform there in the next couple of years? Mm. I'm interested from hearing from all of you, even at a state level, um, are there measures that could be percolating up either in this election or perhaps the next election, which could address some of those uh, less direct impacts on elections? Yeah, I'll, I'll go, go ahead and go first. I haven't heard of anything uh bubbling up here in Florida on either a, uh, a topic of surrounding campaign finance reform uh, or the uh, district um, redrawing of, of, of the districts. And I, my opinion is that, you know, both of those, like you mentioned, are, are, extreme barriers for uh, third parties and including the Alliance party. And it's, it's something that's going to definitely need to be addressed. I don't see, um, however, that there is much political will in either of the main, you know, major parties to take up either of those initiatives. Uh, so, you know, my thought is that it would need to come from a constitutional amendment to the, uh, the state constitution in order to really drive that sort of movement um, from the, uh, the people themselves versus their politicians. How would the uh, Citizens United, I, I, I'm not sure how that, uh, I'm not a scholarly law type person, so I'm not sure how that would fly in the face of Citizens United. If, if say, a state decides to do uh, take their own initiative to do like campaign reform or campaign finance reform or um, you know getting dark money out of politics. How would that work at the state level if we already have the Citizens United um, decision at the uh, Supreme Court level? It's kind of an open question for anybody because I really don't know the answer to that one. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's a very um, sticky question. Right. Uh, you know, if the idea surrounding, you know, businesses or, or corporations being um, protected under First Amendment you know, uh, rights to free speech and, and as such being able to spend money as they would like on um, politics or positions as they like, um, I, I think it does make it very, very difficult uh, you know, but I, I think that conversation needs to occur. We, we need to have that that challenge. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure that the the outcomes of Citizens uh, United was really understood when it when the ruling first came down. And now that we're several years into it, I, I think that there is uh, time to have another discussion. And I think that uh, you know, history has shown us that Supreme Court decisions are not final and immutable. It, it could be that, uh, you know, say hypothetically, a state does pass such a reform that does get challenged all the way up to the court. That's not guaranteed they may rule in the same fashion. Um, so this could be a decision that's revisited. Um, there could also be other angles to approach it. Um, for instance, push the, the transparency and reporting angle a little harder. So maybe we can't get the money out necessarily, but it's easier to see where it's coming from and for people to make an informed decision on the candidates that accept that money. I think Oregon has a ballot measure this year on transparency uh, to that to that point, Greg. Um, I think some other things to look at, you know, they, they've talked about campaign, you know, money in politics being a little like a balloon. You, 
you can strain it on one end, it just pops out the other kind of thing. And then there's, there's a, a lot of truth to that. Um, but some things that can maybe start, begin to start to blunt that. Arkansas has a ballot measure on term limits, very much like the Alliance Party. They're talking about 12-year uh, limits uh, in Arkansas for state legislators. Uh, that's going to be on their, their ballot this year. Uh, we, in the Alliance Party, we talk about a 12-year lifetime limit. Arkansas is 12 consecutive years, and then you got to take four years off. But, but term limits is something that can start to, I think, blunt some of this. Uh, public financing systems. We've got a partial public financing system for campaigns here in Minnesota. Arizona's got a robust system. Maine's got a robust system. Uh, and getting some of the opt-in measures where candidates can opt into the program, um, but you have to do it um, with these conditions that you have to follow. And those conditions can begin to um, create more transparency, get some money out of politics, make for better campaigns and give candidates a real, you know, across the spectrum, including independent alternative candidates, the, the ability to compete. That, that's a sticky question too, because I, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here and I'm thinking, how do you, and we face this in the Alliance party right now too, how do you finance, uh, you know, if you think of running for office, it's basically a marketing operation, right? And marketing operations cost money. So, um, on one hand, you know, you don't want to be under undue influence from the big donors out there. But on the other hand, um, you got to get the word out somehow. So um, I, I just I, I'm still wrestling with it. And I, I hate to say it, I'm kind of a slow learner, I guess, because I'm still wrestling with this after after thinking about it for a very long time, an embarrassingly long time. And I really don't have an answer to that. It's not the easiest question. There's a lot of factors to consider, as you noted. Um, there's definitely competing interests, whether you have a lot of the money to throw around or you don't have a lot of the money to throw around could very much influence your thoughts on that particular subject. But I think one thing it does highlight, and we, I'd like to transition to this point, is the importance of the Supreme Court and how impactful their decisions can be on a lot of facets of American life. And of course, one uh, massive uh consequence of elections is, of course, that the president gets to pick the Supreme Court justices. In this case, President Trump has picked three, the third one being Amy Coney Barrett, who was appointed in a very controversial fashion while an election was ongoing with you know, thousands, if not at that point, perhaps millions of ballots already cast potentially for a new president. I would like you guys to talk a little bit about your thoughts on that SCOTUS process and your I don't know if you have any thoughts on uh, Supreme Court reform. Should that be on the table for the coming years? Or if not, uh, perhaps any speculation you have on the impact this newly conservative Supreme Court may have. And um, Dan, I guess let's start with you. Yeah, I've, uh, some thoughts about it. I've, I'm still under the influence of an article I read in the Boston Globe uh, from July 16th of this year, written by a guy named David Litt. And he comes, uh, he has this observation that um, he starts off with longevity, right? He says, as recently as 100 years ago, Americans could expect to live about 53 years, which means by that standard, I'd already be in the grave. But let's go on with that. Uh, today, you know, we can expect to live to about 79 on the average. And so, and if you have really good health care, you're going to end up living even longer than that. And really good health care applies to people, I guess, from the Supreme Court because they're going to be taken care of, right? So the problem is that when you, um, the average tenure of justices is, according to this article, is going to increase to 35 years on the bench over the next century compared to uh, 17 years over the, over the uh, previous um, 100 years. So what that means is that a president can have a much longer lasting effect on the Supreme Court. Um, and so that's a real problem, right? But so but I always thought that uh, when you're uh, when you're appointed to the Supreme Court, that's it. You've made it. You know, you're like a made man. You've 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 gotten you know to this point and nobody can get you out of that point. But then he brings it to uh, to mind uh, a fairly technical thing, I guess, if you look at Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution, um, it doesn't necessarily say that uh, federal or that, that uh, justices have to be on the Supreme Court. It does say 
Um, well, why don't I just quote right here? The, the Article 3, Section 1 says, the, judi the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. And the judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior. And then it goes on to talk about how much they get paid. But um, the what that tells me is that when you appoint a person to be a justice, that appointment is for life, but it doesn't guarantee that you will be on the Supreme Court. So what what this article goes on to talk about is um, two things. One is we should just go ahead and pack the court, the Supreme Court, with more justices so that the loss of any one justice doesn't cause a great disruption in the force. And the second thing is we should rotate them through the Supreme Court uh, given, giving them, uh, I think he proposed like an 18-year term. I would personally cut it back a little bit more than that. But um, and the upshot of this whole thing is that each president then has a guaranteed number of justices that he or she can uh, advocate for. And so I'm, I'm under the influence of that article right now. I think it's very interesting. I think that uh, when Biden was asked this question about packing the courts, he avoided it. And then he finally answered it and said, you know, we're going to study it, basically. And I can't help thinking that he's thinking the same thing as what was proposed in this article, that perhaps, A, we should pack the courts with more justices, and B, we should rotate them through on a, on a particular schedule so that um, any justice that gets appointed doesn't have that lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. Mark, what about you? I think the... Conversations around Supreme Court right now, uh, it, it's hard to have that conversation without talking about the Senate. Uh, the, Mitch McConnell's Senate has taken measures around the, the Supreme Court, unlike any of his predecessors. And, ha you know, the, the flexing of raw political power in the Senate has really in my opinion, uh, damage that deliberative body. Uh, so much so that a lot of the checks and balances that it's supposed to bring to our system are now in question. Uh, and, and the approval of the Supreme Court justices and, and the consent around them is one of them. And, and so... I, I think it, it is um, I think it's difficult for the Democrats at this point. If you go down the road that they take 2020 and it is a uh, a wipeout on all three branches, I, I think it's hard to see the a scenario where the Democrats are not pushed by that side of their party to pack the courts but it's not in my opinion a a a, a reaction it's more of a reaction to what has already been done versus a now that they're in power this is the the road they're going down but with that said i i agree with with what you were saying Dan, I think the long-term solution is term limits on Supreme Court justices. Um, the 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 big piece that's being played politically is which president gets to choose the justice, and if we are to get away from using this as a, a political football back and forth. Uh, the the only answer that I can think of is allowing it to be standard that each president would get a certain number of justices um, each term to be added to the added to the court, and, and that's going to require term limits. Now, whether you take the justices and you push them down into the the federal courts and then back, you know, up. And you know, however, uh, I, I think the mechanism doesn't matter. You know, to me, I, I think is uh, I think there's a lot of different options. But in the end, the, uh, the idea surrounding 
term limits is I think is crucial for the Supreme Court and uh, in order to get the politics. I think the, the rotation down has some potential downsides in that if a Supreme Court justice then moves to a lower court and rules in a particular case, that may have a chilling effect in that case being heard in an appeal. Uh, that's, I think, one fairly legitimate concern with that concept, but I do agree with Dan that it is one potential way around the constitutional language of the Supreme Court, still respecting its, uh, still respecting the document and the language put in there, but uh, perhaps updated for modern political realities. And I do agree with you, Mark. It seems like the Democrats will not be able to resist the push from their party to try to make some kind of reform change there. Uh, and I'd like to use that to segue into Phil here. You know, with the Supreme Court becoming a political football, how is this playing out in such a tight battleground state like Florida? Are Republicans energized about Amy Coney Barrett and want to try to protect their newly won advantage on the court? Or is this more of a motivating factor for Democrats who might be looking to push uh, Supreme Court reforms because of their concern about the impact um, the new justice balance in terms of ideology might have on them and their lives? You know, I've got to think that across the board, um, Barrett getting on to the Supreme is probably more of a motivating factor for Democrats at this point. Uh, I think I think if the Republicans really wanted to hold that advantage, they probably should have waited until after the election uh, and and kept that specter of the possibility of her not getting on uh, as a motivating factor for Republicans. So so tactically, that might have been a, a bad choice for them to to put her on. Uh, I, I think elections have consequences. You hear that all the time. I think it was uh, improper uh, when Garland's. Uh, nomination in the Obama administration wasn't heard. I think it should have been heard if the Senate wanted to vote it down. That's a, that's a different uh, action that they could have taken, but to not even hold a hearing, I think, was improper. Uh, just as I think it's it, it's proper that the Trump administration was able to nominate uh, somebody. He, they're elected for four years, um, as long as there was enough time to reasonably, you know, not rush a choice through. And there was enough time not to not to rush a choice through that. I think it was proper, um, but I do and I do agree here in Minnesota, uh, our justices, including our Supreme Court, have a mandatory retirement age at seventy. Maybe that's a little too young, but that that is a, a possible solution as well. Um, and I I would agree with Biden. Um, I'm always up for a good study, and I think it's it's fair to uh, study the Supreme Court, try to take some of the politics out of it look at the options, look at pros and cons, have a reasonable structured debate on it, uh, and, and come at the end of the day, come out and say that here are some changes that would be beneficial and we recommend them, or, or maybe there are no changes and this is the, the best system we got. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Phil. I, I had that same thought. You're the first person other than myself to actually enunciate that idea that it, I thought it was kind of from a from a strategic perspective, I thought it was kind of strange that the Republicans would have forced this through before the election, the, the, the nomination and confirmation of, of Justice Barrett, because they basically shot their wad right now, right? And so there's they've got nothing more insofar as the Supreme Court goes. They have nothing more other than just to bask in the glory and perhaps take a victory lap. But you know, that's not as attractive of a reason to vote for Republicans as it would be like, hey, we better vote for Republicans now so that we can get another person on the Supreme Court. So I, I didn't understand that approach from a political perspective. I am a, more of an outsider than you guys, but for me it seemed that uh, they're betting heavily that in one way or another the outcome of the election will find itself before the Supreme Court. And in order to secure a potential Republican victory in that scenario, they really needed the solid justice advantage. Uh, that, that to me is the overwhelming reason to do it beforehand. If they had done it after the election in the lame duck session, that would be, I think, far more politically contentious than doing it now, even though it was politically contentious as it was. So I think it was their, their acknowledgement that even if they waited, the race would still be extremely close, and they're banking on the court having to make some kind of truly impactful ruling that could decide the election and to make sure that the court decided in their favor. 
Yeah, we, we talked about COVID before, and this is the thing that gets me, though, and a lot of people have criticized Republicans over this, that they were focused more on uh, confirmation in the Supreme Court than they were on um, voting on a relief bill. You know, people, if people vote by their pocketbook, and there's a lot of people out there that, you know, need the relief bill, need the, the relief money, um, they would look at the Supreme Court confirmation with a bit of cynicism, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's, you know, down here in Florida, I think that's one of the uh, interesting uh, things to look at on uh, election night. It, it, seniors specifically down in Florida are moving away from Trump, which was a, uh, a demographic that he held uh, well in 2016. Uh, and We've all heard the numbers on women across the country moving away from Trump as well. I think those two uh, demographics that are, are going to be thinking more about the health of themselves and their family uh, along with, with the uh, kitchen table bills every month, uh, I think you're going to see you know, how much these types of decisions that McConnell and, and Trump put together surrounding the Supreme Court nomination, what, what sort of impact that will have on the election overall? Obviously, this election is going to be kind of a, I mean, maybe it's not obvious, but I think that it is going to be a, a bellwether for the country about what direction we are going to go. There are a lot of very prescient topics. I mean, the, the COVID is one, its impact on the economy is another. Um, but we also have to talk about civil rights, Black Lives Matter, uh, attempts to restrict voting rights, the increasing effect that partisanship and extremism are having on our political, uh, just the overall political health of the nation. Healthcare itself, like actual real healthcare, <laughs> uh, the role of science in our country, and to what degree we respect and employ experts to determine national policy. How do we train those experts? Our education system, including colleges and college debt. These are all extremely pressing topics for the nation that we haven't really been able to effectively address largely due to political partisan gridlock. But this could be a, like I said, a bellwether election that's gonna determine where we go in a lot of these directions. And I'd like to hear some speculation from each of you on Hey, how do you think the election is going to play out? And you know, what's your what's your thought on the the main fallout of the election? So we fast forward to January. Where are we looking at going as a country? And let's start off with Phil. From a prognosticating standpoint, I, I really I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I, I think either either President Trump could win re-election or, or Vice President Biden could could take it. I think Biden's in a better position. You know he's uh, he's in the position that you want to be in, uh, leading, uh, and and maybe his to lose, so to speak. Um, but I'm not sure where it's going to fall uh, at the end of the day. Um, as far as the country as a whole, I have strong faith in our our social structures that we have in the country. We do have a lot of acrimony. Uh, it's unfortunate. It's it's great. It's great to see uh, the participation. In the country up everybody everybody seems to be up and participating and wanting to participate and feeling like like it's important and that's fantastic to see on the one hand on the other hand it's unfortunate that the reason that folks are all uh up in arms so to speak is that they view the other as the enemy you know they're looking across the river and and all they see is the enemy the both sides and, and that's unfortunate. And while I do think we do have strong, strong social structures um, and we can weather the storm, we've got to start changing the tone and the tenor in this country. We have to, I've said it earlier uh, in the show, we've got to be able to, to not only uh, listen to each other, but hear each other, talk things out, realize at the end of the day, look, I'm gonna need you to help me move and, and you're going to need me to come over and help paint your house. You know, so we got to, we got to remain friends. We, we're, we're in this together. We are Americans. We got to get that message out um, through the Alliance party, through our candidates. And that then I believe will allow us to solve the other problems. Mark, what's your view? 
I think it's all about Florida, 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 <laughs> like it usually is, right? <laughs> I think I, I think we're going to see on election night uh, early on uh, how this election is is, is going to fall. Uh, the race in Florida here is is like usual, extremely close, uh, according to you know the polls. But I, I think there are a couple of things that I am specifically watching for, uh, not only in Florida but across the country, in the election, and that's the youth vote. Uh, I'm seeing numbers that are off the charts down here in in Florida from folks from 18 to 29 that are voting. And this is going to be a a group of, of, uh, or a demographic that is gonna be difficult to pull. And if they break towards uh, Biden, they have the potential of uh, really flipping the map uh, across the country uh, towards the Democrats. So I think that we're going to see how Ohio plays out, how Pennsylvania plays out, and um, Florida. And if, if they are in the uh, Trump column early in the evening, then uh, I think is it, that the Republicans have a fighting chance. Uh, but if you see any of those uh, drop to to Biden, then um, I, I think it's it's pretty much over. Uh, I think long term, like Phil mentioned, I think the participation and the enthusiasm surrounding um, election season is 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 great to see. Um, I I also, however, am very concerned at the uh, level of of, of animosity that's involved, um, but not only with you know each other, but just in the simple uh, act of having a political conversation ha- has now become uh, almost uh, unbearable for for some folks, and, and that's a problem specifically for our party um, because we are going to need to have have these conversations with people in order to get them out of the duopoly that they're in right now. And so we need an electorate that's willing to at least talk to us. Uh, so, so I think that is going to be a, a major challenge. Uh, along the same lines, however, is that as the two parties continually move farther and farther to the extremes of their party, that leaves a wider, wider gap of moderates in the middle for us to tap into. And I, um, I really believe that that is where um, we're going to see the Alliance Party take hold. And um, if, if we can get a message out of, of reasoned, uh, controlled, compromised discussion and, and um, not raw politics my way or the highway, uh, if we can get that type of message out, I think that there is a lot of voters in, in the middle that uh, that'll resonate with. The prospect of getting the youth vote engaged is really, really appealing because that's getting them politically engaged is going to be a big part of the future. Uh, Dan, love to hear your predictions on this election and the direction of the country after it. Yeah, I'm just going to key off exactly what you just said right there. There certainly is a lot of energy out there, but you know, the question is, how do we channel all this energy into something that um, that's productive, right? So, as you mentioned before, Greg, you have like you know, we have these these civil rights issues taking place, voting rights, uh, hyper partisanship, healthcare, science, education. All these things really need to be resolved. Um, but I find this thing, hyper-partisanship, being the biggest barrier to overcome. We had a um, we had Dr. Jennifer McCoy on this podcast uh, last September, let me see, September 27th. And subsequent to that, she was actually on a podcast called Politics in Question, which is run by a guy named Lee Drutman, who was also on our podcast recently. But uh, she has this observation. She's a poli science professor um, from Georgia State University. She has studied a lot of political systems, especially the system in, in Venezuela, 
where she was watching firsthand how the how that political system in Venezuela, which really worked out well for the middle class at one point, um, fell apart. And it fell apart along partisan lines. And she said it got so bad that the parties would refer to each other as them. And, and everybody knew who them was. They were the enemy. And we're seeing that take place in this country right now. And if you listen to the podcast with uh, Dr. McCoy, either here or on, on the other podcast called Politics in Question, it can kind of scare you out of your skin as to see what's happening. And I think part of the problem is, uh, again, I go back to that, to that book, uh, Politics Industry by, by Gail and Porter. Um, they talk about what is causing us to be driven apart. And I think to a large degree, it is the primaries. Um, <clears throat> and the reason why I say that is, is uh, we've seen it with AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, when she defeated, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Joe Crowley in, in New York. He was what's called primaried out of the party because he was not far enough to the left. We had it here in St. Louis recently, too. We had uh, Cori Bush, um, a very fine person. I mean, and she got she she got her start uh, really uh, got politically active in the wake of of the Ferguson riots here, which is in uh, Congressional District One of Missouri. And so now she is she out primaried the incumbent Lacey Clay, also a Democrat, obviously. Um, and so the the pattern I'm seeing here is that we're becoming more radicalized because it, the the people who vote in the primaries. Or one reason I should say one reason is that the people who vote in the primaries are the people who are more radicalized to begin with. Not necessarily radicalized, but they're farther away from the center. And so, any incumbent who tries to run, uh, Democrat or Republican, who tries to make overtures to the other side, tries to meet in the middle, tries to be, um, and uh, uh, tries to actually you know, cooperate with the other side, they're looked upon as an enemy. And so. You're seeing a hollowing out of the Republican Party. There are some really good people in the Republican Party that are gone, right? I mean, it it just it's amazing to me, you know, like uh, Jeff Flake and so on. All these guys, they're they're out because um, they're either fed up with it or they get they get primaried out. And so what you're left with are these radically uh, different camps. And now we're starting to see where they're vilifying each other. And I think that all these other issues, uh, whether it's civil rights or voting rights or or even COVID for that matter, and, and especially healthcare and, and the and the role of science in our in our uh, in our society, all gets put off to the sideline, uh, and it just it it becomes all about partisanship after a while, and that's the that's the disaster course I think we're on. So, um, do I have hope? Yeah, because there's a lot of people getting involved now. You can see. Um, a lot of younger people in particular, participation is up, as, as Phil said. Um, and you're seeing things like ranked choice voting. Uh, we talked about, you know, Final Four primary type of type of approaches. These are good approaches, I think, that can help us mend this distance that we have from each other and and drive out the partisanship. The whole idea of the legislature is to compromise, is to get together and come up with solutions, find places where you can agree. And right now we can't even get that far. So I don't know how we're going to solve some of these other big issues. And they're becoming huge issues. Uh, Civil rights especially. You mentioned Black Lives Matter earlier. Um, It really is uh, going back to pre-1960s in many ways. And this is not the direction we're supposed to be going in. But... uh, I don't know unless we unless we um, get rid of hyperpartisanship, open up the uh, political system, let in other parties like the Alliance Party, not necessarily let them in, but but open it up so that these other parties have an opportunity to take root and um, and become a part of the political discussion in our country, as it is with any other um, advanced demo- democracy out there. They don't have duopolies; they have multiple parties. We need to do the same thing here in order to stabilize things, and I think then we can move forward and, and uh, start working on some of these other issues. Yeah, I think uh, regardless of how this election plays out, the mending of political offenses and beginning the healing of our democracy, I think probably going to be the central issue before we can tackle anything else. And I also think that's a great hopeful point to end on. We've been talking with Phil Fuhrer, the Alliance State Chair for Minnesota, 
Mark Cardenas, the Alliance State Chair for Florida, and your usual host, Dan Schaefer, the Alliance State Chair for Missouri. Thank you guys for the chat this evening. Thanks, Rick. Greg and Dan, thanks, thanks for having so much. us on. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also keep in mind that the podcast is a Twitter page, at Alliance On Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or guests we could interview in a future show, please drop us an email at podcast at thealliancearty.com. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, and former Republicans, combined with alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents to provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party, and if you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog to run for office. We'd love to hear from you and get you involved. I'm Greg, tonight's host for this special pre-election edition of the Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of everyone here at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, great week ahead. Go vote, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and take care of yourself and those around you.